Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to His Darker Materials. This is the podcast that goes episode by episode through the HBO BBC show His Dark Materials, based on the novels by Philip Pullman. And today we are going to be talking about season three, episode six of the show. So if you have not seen everything up to season three, episode six, please go away, watch them. They're really pretty good. And uh, and come back to us and enjoy it at that point, because we will be spoiling everything up to this point. I'm Helen O'Hara. With me, as always, is Dave Corkery. Hello, Helen. Hello. And we will be joined by, as ever, some of the cast and crew to talk us through how they made the show. But to begin with, let's have a quick kind of overview of what you thought of episode six. Dave, this was mahoosive, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, it's a big episode, right? And we're, yeah. and we're still like, this is like, the, we got, we're three from the end here. Anti-penultimate. And, uh, right? Uh, they are just packing it in. I mean, like, this is the longest amount of notes we've had to write. Uh, just that if, if I'm to judge it on a pure note level. Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was excellent. But but what I liked is there's a lot of real big plot stuff and expositional stuff, but there's the episode all also made room for some really great character stuff. And I think that's what I really admire about this this show in that I think a lesser fantasy show would just get caught up in the the lore and the the destinies and the prophecies and all that. But we but we we get time here for just Mrs. Coulter talking to her demon in a very intimate fashion. And for me, that was one of the most memorable scenes in the, in well, in this whole series. Yeah, it really is. Mrs. Coulter, what a freaking character. I mean, on the page of the book as well as here on screen. But, you know, with Ruth Wilson and this whole team, I think they've just knocked it out of the park with her. She is so complicated, so hard to pin down, but not in a way that feels like they're making up as they went along, not in a way that feels forced or or artificial. It just feels like she really is this weird and and unusual and powerful and terrifying and loving and crazy a person. You know, it just feels like she has all those layers and she just kind of comes fully formed. Should we start with her? Because, you know, we pretty much finished with her last week. So she seemed to have escaped from the Magisterium's clutches just as they were about to sever her demon. She seemed to be in control and then literal heaven intervened and, you know, knocked everything a little <laughs> bit for six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so she she's left in the aftermath uh, of this. And we are looking at a magisterium with, you know, that's kind of been shook the powers out. You know, uh, she goes to find Fra Pavel to ask what had, did, did Lyra survive this? And he tells her, that is the, quick, the quickest alethiometer reading Fra Pavel has ever done. Ever, ever, ever. Yeah, he's he's Lyra speed at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like fair play. He works well under pressure, I guess, by candlelight. But he tells her that she had she is dead, right? Or we don't. I, I forget exactly what words he used, but uh, yeah, we we know she's in the land of the dead. But uh, so he's not wrong. She takes off to uh, hops back in the intention craft, uh, and then is back to Azrael to blame him. 
really, essentially. And fairly so, I think, in a way. If you were a bit confused about what happened at the end of last episode, this kind of makes it clear, I feel like, because she literally says, yes, I had disarmed the bomb, everything was fine, and then you poked the wrong bear and they sent a lightning bolt which made them made the bomb go off anyway essentially right and i think we needed that we were both a bit confused by it so this is good she has made that clear i think what's also really just fun is that you know she doesn't always have all the right answers because she doesn't always have all the information yes lyra is among the dead uh, you know as this episode begins what she doesn't know is that Lyra was already among the dead before the bomb went off and Lyra yeah, isn't yeah, technically yeah, yeah. dead. She's just among, you know, so it's kind of, um, I, I quite enjoy when people are making decisions based on faulty evidence in some of these kind of stories. Yeah. Because it allows for a lot of dramatic irony. But yeah, I mean, her scenes with with Azrael, who's, who's still being, it has to be said, a total dick about his daughter. He's so awful, isn't He's he? so awful in this. Yeah. And, and and I think particularly in um, in this episode, you know, she says, you know, he's t- he's like still trying to fix something, and he says he also says something like, you know, he says some awful stuff here. He's like, I'm sorry for your loss. Like he never he he won't acknowledge that he has anything to do with with Lyra, claim any responsibility. We see that kind of come to a head a bit with a gunway. I think who is seeing the real. Azrael here because he's seeing how he reacts to his daughter's deaths allegedly and to Ruta's death. The main emotion we see from him in this episode is excitement, right? There's no mourning, there's no hint of mourning. Whereas Mrs. Coulter, I thought again, Ruth Wilson, just so good because she's playing we see a different Mrs. Coulter in every episode, right? And but yet it always feels like the same person. She's holding herself differently here. She's slumped. She's just browbeaten. There's there's glimpses of a smile coming through occasionally, but she is, or an, an an occasional sort of trying to work her previous magic. But mostly, this is a defeated woman. I think you see that best in um. Well, first of all, like her demon, she and her demon are back on on the outs a little bit, mm. and her demon not you know coming with her when sort of told to do oh, so. Such a good moment. So good. Um, but then also the, it's the showdown with with Serafina Pecola who comes back and is like, uh, you know, you murdered my friends. I'm not having this. You are, you know, I'll kill you too. And she's like, yeah, brilliant. Super good. Put me out of my misery. You know, it's a real kind of a nihilism, I think, that she's feeling right now. It's just a complete, just uh, annihilated by grief, I think, at this point. And I think this is a full realisation in that scene with Serafina Pecola of this idea of the, of how Mrs. Coulter has changed, you know, with what we've been talking about for the past few episodes. But she says it in, as, you know, in, in, in the dialogue, essentially, that she is, um, you know, love made her fragile and that she allowed that in and it changed her. And I think the other the other interesting thing from that scene was that that whole idea of recontextualizing the Adam and Eve mythology. You know, she talks about Seraphina talks about Eve. You know, all Eve did was dare to experience. You know, uh, and she she flips it on its head. This this temptation, like Eve, is always portrayed as the villain, as as dangerous, or in a way, or she you know weak. But she flips it and says it's brave, right? It's bravery, and that's the, one of the defining characteristics of Lyra. Very, very much so. Yeah. And that's that's a really good point. I think, you know, well, look, there are whole dissertations that have uh, been written about, you know, Eve mythology and how it's basically 
changed over time and how it is used to justify a huge amount of uh, sexism and misogyny and just victimization, basically, of women. And I think that, you know, the, the witches, if they stand for one single thing, and of course they stand for many, but if there's one th- single thing, it's it's absolutely not accepting that reading of, of history, that reading of life. So it makes it makes perfect sense that Serafina would be the one to for that to come out now in conversation with her, for this to be the, the conversation. And because I think I think she recognizes on some level that that Mrs. Coulter's own witchiness. No, she's obviously been through a, a trauma she's been through a process much like the witches go through when they become witches. You know, so there is an element, I think, of sisterhood here and there is an element of seeing her maybe even subconsciously as as someone similar to herself. Do you know what I mean? I feel like there's something of that there. I agree. There was a compassion and an empathy from Serafina here when when Mrs. Coulter wanted the 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 opposite, you know. Exactly. And I think that was um that was beautifully played by both actresses. And especially, you know, given everything that Serafina has lost along the way and given that things don't go super well for the witches this episode either. No, I I I guess we we'll, we'll just Briefly mentioned, I guess a Ruta, Ruta's demon gets sucked into this void, right? That uh, that that Azrael discovers, and so we get some opening dialogue exposition in this episode from Metatron about you know dust can be taken away, and that dust was given to man as you know as free will, right? That's essentially what enabled it. I think is what what he's what he's saying, right? And and so it's been taken away, and we've seen this, and 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 I like we see this throughout all the plots everyone this again feels like a convergence of the plots here where everyone is experiencing this great chasm and dust being being sucked in it feels like suitably kind of epic and yeah ruta ruta sadly gets sucked into it or her demon does yeah her demon does yeah it's it's very lucky that that she's the only one i mean obviously it's not lucky for her but it's it's very lucky for other people because we see you know the first time we see azrael first of all he is delighted that this has happened he is over the moon that he has provoked somebody enough that they have torn up the world, the multiverse, in reaction. He's mad, isn't he? There's a, there's a madness to him. Yeah. But also, he goes spelunking in the rift. <laughs> yeah. And like his demon is there at the top going, this is a super bad idea. Yeah. And, and literally, <laughs> yeah, the more she tells him it's reckless, the deeper he goes into it. So she says it's reckless. So his reaction is to go deeper. Now, again... If she is him, if she is his soul, and his reaction to being told by his soul is, this is a bad idea, is to do it more, that tells you so much about him. It does. and But that's a, such an interesting idea, this whole, again, you know, back to this whole conversation with yourself, right? But I, I think people, we experience that as well. Not me personally, but I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain element of having to overcome your instincts or your sort of logic sometimes or or a part of you that's telling you not to do something to be able to do something there's a there's a sort of that there's something about a bravery in that almost uh not that i don't think what he's doing is bravery i think it's just madness and folly mostly yeah i think it is i think it's um it's yeah it's it's him just completely lost in his own plans and his own concerns and not really admitting any naysayers at this point and like you said, it's a, it's an excitement as well, right? He's excited to go down there and it's the scientist in him and the discovery. Now that he's on the brink of success and he's sort of, you know, stirred the beast, he is 
he's becoming more and more reckless as well. I think again, I think a gun way we see, you know, he, he's starting to realize what he has signed up for and he kind of calls Azrael on it. And I think the other thing, um, so the other, and then the other big moment that Azrael has in this uh, episode is the confrontation with, uh, with Yorick, which was a good scene. Yeah, that was great. I mean, so it's important, obviously, from a story point of view and for a update point of view, you know, Yorick's able to tell him, no, it's not, you know, Lyra isn't dead. She's just in the land of the dead. Totally different thing. I can understand your confusion, but seriously. Um, (laughs) You know, but but also like Yorick, I think finally convincing Azrael that, you know, he's maybe been missing a couple of things. So this whole, she is everything you are not. Oh, I like that line. I mean, absolutely great. And then, oh, perhaps I should have known her better. He's like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe you may make a point. And it's that classic kind of, there's a certain kind of alpha male who will take a woman seriously if another alpha male tells them to. Oh, God, that's a great point. I, I feel like it's that. Like Mrs. Coulter could st- stand there all day going, Lyra matters. And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. And it's a, it's only when, when a giant cool bear says a it. A giant like, cool bear Maybe says there is something it, you know? about No, you're right, because he instantly becomes proud of her and doesn't he he's like my daughter is staging a prison break i'm so proud and he calls her his daughter right which he yeah. doesn't very rarely does it's yeah um, that is not his go-to oh that's a great point yeah yeah so he is asriel kind of misogynistic deep down then i mean look i'm not saying like deliberately misogynistic i i and I, I don't think i think he's closer to being just misanthropic and just not caring about anybody you know but but at the same time I think there is an element of, you know, those guys, I mean, alpha male is a stupid term and it like in no way relates to wolves and all, it's all based on nonsense. But you know what I mean when I say it. But I think there is a tendency in guys who think they're the guy to only listen to other guys who feel the same way. And even then, you know, rather warily, only after sizing them up and deciding that they're they're really okay. Yeah, to me, it makes a certain amount of sense that he would listen to Yorick more than anybody else. Or like Ogunwe has become, you know, a major advisor in the same way. I mean, he shows a certain amount of deference and respect to the witches, but they feel like a, a slightly different attitude to the one he has with Ogunwe and the one he has with, with Yorick. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, there is a there's an inherent sort of difference there. I like that he's finally paying attention to Lyra now. But I also think that another reason might be that is it Mrs. Coulter who points out to him that she he she has achieved more than his rebellion ever could, or, or one of the characters, yes. perhaps a Serafina says that. Um, and I think that's him finally having to acknowledge that not only is she important, but she is suddenly his ego and is under threat. Right. Because because it's like he's and I think that kind of makes him a little bit proud because he's claiming the victory then because that's my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) So that counts as me doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a bit of that as well. But I think there's also, you know, he's been showing all all season when people have mentioned Lyra, told him Lyra matters. He's been I think he's partly been dismissing it for just that reason. It's like, no, but okay. Whatever about Lyra, I have been working on this my entire life. I have literally broken a a, a door between worlds. I've gone out and recruited angels to my cause, traveled the multiverse, picking up soldiers. And you want to tell me that's all less ex- less important than some pre-teenage girl who <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just went looking for her buddy. Come on, like, let's be serious people. You know, there's been an element of just instinctive dismissal and um, because of what Lyra is rather than what Lyra's character is. And so, yeah, he's beginning to reckon with with that now. There's, there's almost a bit of a meta commentary on it in terms of like he represents kind of the tr- a, a very traditional 
archetypal hero, right? In many ways, and and anything in a, in a lesser story, kind oh, of he'd be the hero. Be, he'd be yeah. our hero, right? Yeah. Where so he's also quite threatened by this sort of young adult character protagonist who is the protagonist who is the actual (laughs) honestly you could also make it into a sort of meta commentary on you know on these books on young adult publishing on on you know teen focused anything There, there is a tendency to dismiss anything that teen girls like as inherently unserious and unimportant. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look at how the Beatles were were seen towards the end of their career versus the beginning. You know, if if teen girls like you, that is inherently suspicious to some people, and it inherently means you are unserious. And so, for Azriel to be dismissive in the same way, I feel like it could be a, a meta commentary on the whole of young adult publishing. Perhaps I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but like, it's that's really interesting. Saying, I hadn't really thought about that because also I think the same could be said of Robert Pattinson recently, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, oh, he's Batman now. He's cool. It's like, yeah, people have been telling you he was quite good for years. Like, if he can, (laughs) yeah. Do you know what I mean? And joining us today is Francesca Gardner, who is one of the screenwriters on the show, one of the three screenwriters, and an executive producer as well. So Francesca wrote episodes six, seven, and eight. She had to bring it all home here at the end of season three and has some fascinating stuff to say about all three episodes. So as ever, there are going to be some spoilers here. You'll be glad to know we haven't talked you know, about anything to come in her any of her other shows. She also writes for Succession, for example. So no succession spoilers, but there are His Dark Material spoilers for episodes six, seven, and eight in here. So if you're a spoiler reverse, please do go away and come back once you've seen them. But otherwise, here's a really fascinating talk from Francesca Gardner. So Francesca, what was it like sort of adapting the most complicated book uh, in this series? I mean, it was a huge challenge. It was It was daunting. Um, for many reasons, uh, the first being the scale, and the second being that I'm such a, a an avid and rabid maybe fan of the books that I felt a huge sense of trepidation about getting it right and doing it justice. I think the main challenge is that is that the amber spyglass is so metaphorical. You know, the story becomes much more like a parable more so than the previous two books, I think. And television is is such a literal medium. You know, how do you translate those metaphors to the screen without it seeming completely ridiculous? How do you dramatise a war against heaven? What does it look like to have angels fighting each other? You know, the storytelling this season needs to have epic scale. And that's hard, that's hard, um, and particularly with financial constraints. This book has got particularly, I think, this beautiful, subtle exploration of themes around love and death and faith. So the task in in writing is keeping a balance in the script between those epic, spectacular moments where and, and where we focus in on the more on the smaller, more intimate character scenes. And the production is huge, with many, many smart and, and strong voices and points of view to juggle. So it was a challenge on every front, but uh, a worthy one, a, a a juicy one. Yeah. So, so how do you writers like decide? Do you, do you take an episode each? Do you take a, a story strand each? Do you 
basically pass everything back and forth among yourselves? You know, how do, how do you work as a team? Interesting. Uh, it's very different from how we work on Succession. His dark, his dark Materials, we don't have a writer's room. We don't really have a lot of interface with each other. Um, it was very clear that Jack was going to be, was writing the first half of the season. I was writing the back end of the season. And then Amelia was writing the sort of uh, keystone hinge, hinging episode, uh, episode five. And we didn't really have a lot of conversation around that. It was, I mean, I think that we, we are, are very complementary in terms of our interpretations of the story. And it, sometimes it's the it's we have to kind of check in mostly it's the script team the script editors in the production who are checking that the you know the neck connects to the shoulders connects to the to the torso that the storyline is 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 being worked through that way but yeah with with succession on the other hand you know we're all we're in a writer's room we're we're untangling and plotting together this is it's a different it's a different beast this one i guess it's it's working different muscles isn't it it's sort of um, giving you a chance to try different things it is but also what we've got with the books which we you know we have we have this is an adaptation so we have such strong pointers and guidelines and you know about what it is that we're doing we've got this beautiful text to work with i mean do you remember when you first read it was is this something that's been in your life for a long time or you know did you did you come to it when when this came up as a, as an option as a job Oh no, I'm afraid that the um, <laughs> I read the I read the Northern Lights when it came out when I was 11. Oh, amazing! So I am I'm fully like fangirl territory. I remember the subtle knife coming out. I remember the amber spyglass coming out, and I remember begging my my I was I just sort of would force these books on anyone who would listen. And I remember my dad being quite snooty about the fact that they were YA, and then. And then I bought him the trilogy for Christmas and he loved them, absolutely loved them. And, you know, I think that the thing that I that I really responded to in Philip's writing is that he never patronises children. It's an epic exploration of the darker um, themes, uh, you know, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily normally find in children's literature, or you would, but it, there's a sort of Disney sanitizing thing that's happened, I think, with children's storytelling. If you look back to the Grimm's fairy tales, that's much more, much more like the, the sort of light and darkness that we see in Philip's writing. Absolutely, even more, even more grim, frankly, at times I think, <laughs> than anything here. Um, well, I don't know. The severance, severing from a demon is yep, fair. You know, basically the, the, the sort of that violent act to a child is, is it's very, it's very dark. I think. It, yeah, it is. Absolutely. So like, just to be clear, this will come with a spoiler warning and, and it will be marked as such. But, you know, th- that back end of the season, you have a huge amount to deal with. It feels like quite, quite a few of the biggest challenges from the book do, do come in that section because you have, as you talked about the war with heaven, you have... You know those incredibly complicated characters of Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael um, yes. to to deal with. You have you know the 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 job of of transforming or maybe continuing to transform would be ac- more accurate. You know Will and Lyra's relationship from from a, a friendship and a sort of almost orphans huddling together on a raft into a sort of romance. So you, you had some big challenges to uh, to unpack. Was was there anything that particularly gave you gave you pause? Oh, I mean, yes, every, every, it felt like there was a Sophie's choice every week, you know, about what I was able to portray, what, what to prioritize, 
we're all so keen to do justice to the complexity of the stories and you know these these worlds where you have a demon you have a, a rep, an animal representation of your soul you know you want as much that that's that's such a gift for storytelling but it's such a nightmare for a production budget because every time that you have a demon in a scene you're costing the production just the most extraordinary amounts of money and my episodes might the last three episodes six seven eight they they were the most the by far the most expensive uh, and so i felt that I was, I was just burning through the, the cash there with every single scene but it was necessary because these are the crucial crucial moments from the book you know um from the epic to the most gorgeous quiet love moments between you know between will and lyra one of the things that i struggled with but 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 I'm really pleased I think we have achieved it is staying true to the sort of pattern of of weaving of of storytelling through the story and the importance of of storytelling as a, an act of empowerment one of my favorite ever scenes in the book I got to 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 adapt which was when Mary Malone playing the serpent, effectively telling Will and Lyra her about her own experience of falling in love. And it needed to be really quiet and really simple and really true to the book. And sometimes I think there's a a nervousness in television to just have a bit of space, a little bit of space where a character where you're just on a character and you and and you're having that character tell a story. There's a nervousness about it, and fortunately, we managed to, I think, hopefully, stay true to that. It's a gorgeous scene. Yeah, it's, it's it, it was. I was there on set when it was being filmed, and it was. I cried. I did a lot <laughs> of crying. I did a lot of crying on the show. Every time I had to write episode eight, I, I cried all the way through, and my boyfriend would come in, and be like, "Wow, still, Francesca." <laughs> <laughs> still weeping. So what happened? What happened? And I'm like, no, it's still different. <laughs> I mean, but I I cried watching it, and I've read the book. I don't know how many times, but that that oh, that good. ending is a killer. <laughs> that ending is just a killer. You know, it just oh heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, that episode after episode seven was such a giant challenge. I mean, it was it was really fun too. But how do you get characters to? What does it look like for them to go and confront this sort of godlike authority angel who can see into their minds? What does it mean? It, I had to do some. I, I'm really interested in Jungian archetypes, and I, I, I think I, I had to think about some quite and have some such fun conversations with, particularly Ruth, about if if Ruth was coming face to face with with this extraordinary power, the kind of psychological dance that they would do around each other, what waging war with somebody with some a, a being as powerful as that would look like and for me it would be psychological warfare rather than anything else and so that was a really fun challenge but then episode 8 such a different tone and that script that script just because the material is so rich and so perfect it just fell out that 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 script whole and it really didn't there was very little that changed about it it stayed the same which is and particularly if you know anything about this show, that, about the process of this show, that's really extraordinary because the scripts change a lot, probably more than any other show that I've ever worked on during production. So episode eight was a special one for me. It, it 
it has retained its 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 form. I'm really glad that you, it moved you. Oh my god! <laughs> it, like so so much crying. You have no idea. So so much. <laughs> But but let me talk about episode seven for a moment first, because I'm just fascinated by your take on on Mrs. Coulter and and Lord Azrael. But we talked to both James and uh, Ruth, and they're both fascinating on their characters. But they're so complicated people. They are uh, such such complicated characters, particularly her. And I mean, look, you've worked on Medici, you've worked on Succession. It's not like you're unfamiliar with very, very complicated people. But but even by those standards, these two feel... Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So dense. There's so much to unpack there. And in, and in particular for him to go from essentially despising and being jealous of Lyra to, to that moment at the end of the episode. Yes. What's so rewarding about writing characters as complex as this is that they allow enough space because they have, because they are so complex, they allow enough space for everybody who's involved in crafting the story around them to put a bit of their own spin on them, you know. So they 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 allow space for a myriad of interpretation, and that means that you what you get on screen, hopefully, is the as a product is something fascinating and with lots of dimensions. But it also means that part of the process is these is this wonderful, rewarding, and challenging, convers- endless conversations that we have um, in the creative team. And it's been one of the great pleasures of this show, actually, being able to really explore that. I think Mrs. Coulter, for me, I, I find her one of the most brilliant characters ever to write and to interpret. You know, this sort of chilling archetype of the bad mother I found it so enjoyable digging into what it must have taken for her to become powerful in that cold, masculine world of the magisterium. And I think one of the things that I find really interesting is that she has this instinct, born of her own past trauma, I think, to protect children from darkness. But that instinct is perverted, has been perverted. You know, in in setting up that whole scheme where children were being severed from their demons, it's sort of, there's a, 
there's a motivation there at trying to keep them young and innocent forever. But by sort of protecting them in inverted commas, you're 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 actually stunting them. You're doing this awful violence to them. And I think that's a really interesting parallel parable, I suppose. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but that does make a huge amount of sense. And it also, I think, explains so much of her fascinating relationship with her own demon, which, you know, again, we talked to, to Ruth about last season, but I mean, they are so deeply dysfunctional for most of, you know, the three seasons of this show. And there, there's, a, there's a sense of I don't know if it's reconciliation or, or some kind of rapprochement, at least, uh, uh, towards the end that feels like, you know, that there's been genuine progress for her. Yes. Well, I think that that is necessary. It was we are unpicking it, uh, knowing that our endpoint is getting Mrs. Coulter to a point where she is able to fully see who Lyra is and make a sacri- that sacrifice of her own life for her that's a wonderful place to know that we have to and same with with Azrael it's a wonderful place you you can sort of you you then do a reverse engineer of what are the steps that it takes to get her to that point and it's she has to learn that true that true love isn't possession she can't drug her daughter into compliance for me it was all wrapped up in this idea of flipping the Adam and Eve myth that you know what if actually Eve choosing the apple of experience was not only necessary for humankind, it was actually the best possible thing because living a, you know, this ri- a rich, full life means experiencing darkness as well as light. And that means letting go of shame. I think that her shame is demonstrated, Mrs. Coulter's shame is demonstrated in her relationship with her, with her demon. She lets go of her shame. There's a conversation that she has with Serafina um, that I wrote in episode six, I think where Serafina says, don't you see how experience, you were a monster and don't you see that what experience has done for you, it's made you, it's made you able to love and you love your daughter. And I think that realisation allows her to, to find peace with herself and, and that's presented with her by her relationship with a monkey. And only then is she able to, because she's come into sort of full self-actualization. Only then is she able to hoodwink this complex, all-seeing being. And, and and I mean, I love that that it, it it sort of ultimately like accepting this weakness that she sees in herself makes her stronger. That she that she is able to you know use yes all her guile and all her wits and all her cunning and everything, but also her her sort of newfound compassion in that moment. It's it's a fantastic fantastic way of approaching it. I think it's a statement about living in a world of such fundamentalist patriarchy that she has had to twist herself into this seductress role. I loved bringing her to a point where at the authority at the, the um, Metatron could see her. She was trying to do that that same trick that worked so well on the you know sexually repressed magisterium lot. But I love that I got to explore the, uh, her to the point where. She tries to use that trick on Metatron and Metatron calls her out on it. And it's like peeling back the layers, that conversation that she and Metatron has, it's sort of peeling back the layers of the games, the tricks that she uses to manipulate. It's such a joy, this this text, because it just allows so much 
exploration. As you say, it's just so rich. It's it's just glorious. Well, what about um, Azrael then, though, as well? Because I feel like he is, um, he's he's so he's so expanded here first of all from the book in a way that i think the show benefits from you know because he's he disappears for such long time in the book and, and there's there's so little explanation of, of how he gets to where he ends up um but but also just seeing him interact a little bit more with mrs coulter and, and seeing that relationship i thought was fascinating yes well it's sort of a love triangle in a way it's a sort of funny <laughs> parental child love triangle really I think that Azrael yearns and yearns for Mrs Coulter's love actually both Azrael and Mrs Coulter find it very hard to love um, because love means it means vulnerability love means a letting go and Azrael is so puffed up with a sense of his own, own importance for such a long time um, you know he's this egocentric arrogant character Again, how do you take him to a point of humility and sacrifice? And I loved the sort of process of breaking him down and seeing how how really, you know, I think Mrs. Coulter is yearning for Lyra's love. And we, when we first meet Lyra, she's she's yearning for, for Azrael's love. So there's a sort of, they're all sort of wanting something of each other. And I know it seems a contradiction the idea that Azrael sort of might love Lyra, but I think I think he's a little bit like I was the, the aversion that Mrs. Coulter has with her with her monkey, with her demon, to the sort of to the vulnerable part of herself. I think Azrael has the same thing. I think he can't admit to himself that he loves Lyra because to do that would make him vulnerable, and he need to to, to do what he wants to do for his ambition to succeed. He needs to forget. He needs to ignore that part of himself. It was quite quite fun coming up with the idea of the form that Metatron takes to appear to Azrael. The idea I was about to ask, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, originally I just thought how this is a psychological battle. So what would Azrael most fear? What would what would be most challenging for Azrael? And I think to see himself, to face himself in combat would be I thought that was a fun way of showing Azrael's psychology. Yeah, it's. I mean, he he does have. A, you know, I think as you just said, like just essentially nuclear level arrogance, like just on yeah. a whole other scale. So yeah, who else would he? Who else would he consider a threat? Really, exactly. And I think he wants to. It's the contrast between the game that goes on between Mrs. Coulter and Metatron, and this physical fight that goes on between Azrael and Metatron. That's very. It's it's meant to demonstrate the the very different characters that Azrael and Mrs. Coulter are. I mean, I love the fact that they both come to realise that it's not about them, that it's about, and in fact, maybe their whole lives were not about them, but, a, but about their, them for them for this dynamic, extraordinary, explosive love that they have creating Lyra, who's going to save the multiverse. And and, and also that, that moment of, of complete accord between them and their demons I thought yes. at the end you know having Stel Maria sort of ride in on a white horse at the last minute um just you know it, everything finally comes together in a way that they could never have agreed on anything before absolutely I, well, I what I hope is um you will you'll get as as an audience watching this what I hope is that we keep you guessing all the way up till the very end if Mrs Coulter 
is going to she's she's offered temptation on this extraordinary scale she's offered in the books it's more of a sort of seduction but uh it seemed that the mrs coulter that we'd developed you know with ruth bringing all sorts of extraordinary complexity to her it seemed like a fitting end is one where she is offered the temptation that she's offered is sort of a supernatural status I mean, that is true to the books, too. I think Metatron does does offer her a place as his sort of queen. But we we kind of removed the sort of romantic relationship that, that is suggested in the book between Metatron and Mrs. Coulter. And instead, it's power that she's being offered. Which makes a lot of sense from from everything we've seen of her, really, from the beginning of the show, that it's it's power that keeps her safe, isn't it? It's power that yeah. will protect her. So that's what she's always been after, yeah. Absolutely, and and then let let's then talk about um about episode eight again, and just getting back to Mary and and the Malefa. Um, you you I'm sure are possibly quite glad that you didn't have the challenge of trying to design them. I mean, they turned out absolutely glorious, but you know. yes, oh my gosh, the the team, Joel and the team, and the, and and Russell. I mean, they're just they're just so brilliant. The whole the whole the whole lot of them that's just so brilliant we were all a bit worried about how we were gonna I mean I think and Jane says it too I'm sure she has said it to you that she was worried about the Malefa and actually you know the puppeteers are so fabulous too on this show and Simone who plays Mary you know she she was so into it she was so into it and there was this beautiful relationship that developed you know between her and the puppeteers and the production designers and the whole the land of the Malefa being this Eden. It was amazing to visit on set actually because they really built that huge tree with the roots, like ginormous. And so you'd walk into the onto set and it was the scale was amazing. It really felt like being in Malefa world. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I, I one of the things that I I wish we'd have a bit had a bit more space for is to spend more time with the Malefa, honestly, because that's one of my favourite things in, about the books too. And particularly with Atal, I think there's so much humour in the book. Playfulness. There's just such playfulness. And I wrote a lot of scenes that unfortunately had to be cut. And alas, you know, everyone was sad about that. But hopefully what remains suggests, gives the suggestion and honours the nuance of the relationship between Mary and the, the Malefa. That she, you know, she's the one who kind of pushes Mary into into full honesty and, and, and sort of describing that almost almost Proustian scene, isn't it? Of of, you know, having a having a marzipan and and having this whole flood of memory. It absolutely is the Madeline moment. I think Mary's such a great character for exploring the idea of the superiority that we have as human beings. Uh, science, science as a sort of authority over us. And I think, you know, one of the things that I really loved about season two was the opportunity to bring in the idea of negative capability, which is what Lyra and Mary Malone discuss when they first meet, which is this idea of, it's it's an idea from Keats. I think the definition is the ability to perceive and recognize truths beyond the reach of facts or reason. And that, to me, is such a beautiful idea and one that Mary comes to realise organically by being in the world of the Malefa, you know, that, 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 there's, that there are truths and experiences beyond the rational have meaning 
and I, I just love that message throughout the throughout all three of the books actually it's it's they're very you know humanist books I mean I think there was you know I, I don't know if there'll be any blowback to the BBC showing a war on heaven at Christmas I would hope that we've kind of moved past that now that these books have been thoroughly discussed out but there's there's so much warmth and humanity and compassion in them that they you know I feel like even a lot of religious people we actually had um Father Richard Cole on the show in season one but even you know people who are in theory being attacked in the books actually have a lot of time for them Mm. Well, I don't think that they're anti-religious, actually. I, For me, they're anti-fundamentalist. They're anti-authoritarian. What they celebrate is experience, is the complexity of human and beyond the um, experience. And that's the, that's the sort of the overarching message for me is, is that. I, I think that if you have faith, I think actually they're, they're a beautiful book for you. It heartens me that you had Father Richard Cole on in the first season. That's great. That's, <laughs> it's good. I certainly don't see them as attacking any religion. I think he pretty much agrees with exactly what you just said. So, you know, I think I think that's right. But I think that's that's probably a lovely place to wrap it up. But just just one final question. You know, you know, there is there are the prequel sequel books, um, obviously that Phil Pullman is is still working on. You know, if 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 we're back here in a few years for the Secret Commonwealth, will you be fighting for a place in that writer's non room as well? <laughs> I mean, listen, it's a gift to adapt Philip's work. I begged my way onto the show to begin with. I wasn't I wasn't meant to be writing on it, and I was visiting Bad Wolf for another show, and I bumped into a big armored bear, and I was so struck because oh I realized God. what it was being made and so I basically begged begged to be involved um so yes if they if they'll have me they'd be foolish not to at this point because you know you're now on another one of the the best shows in the world in succession as well which is just an astonishing show if anybody listening hasn't seen it correct that now unless you're a small young person in which case maybe wait a few years there's quite a lot of bad language <laughs> but francesca thanks so much for for talking to us and uh, yeah fingers crossed for the secret commonwealth thanks so much it's been a pleasure I think one thing um, before we move on to the land of the dead to, to also just chat about is that scene with Mrs. Coulter and her demon. I thought this was really, really beautifully done. Some, some like superb writing here. And again, as always, just the, the, the visual effects work is fantastic on her, uh, on her monkey. And, and just to be able to cr- like, to take us from a place where he was very much creepy and scary and, in season one and now he's very sympathetic uh I, I particularly like that whole idea of you know i thought i was the strong one but it was you you know all, you all along and that little touching of the paw i i loved it i thought that was great and like we said we've been talking about this uh, particularly this season but but even before that her her monkey is carrying so much of her buried trauma and her her difficulties and her you know i think very cold very lonely very harsh childhood and she's almost been blaming him for that and blame, you know, he's the repository of, of all that pain. And so to sort of spin it around this way, I thought was great. Getting them back on the same page feels like really important character growth for her. It just feels like that's uh, an opening up of her character and an opening up of her soul that we we never really saw until maybe, maybe the, I guess, the last moments of last series. But really, it's it's all been kind of growing since she 
since she had to care for Lyra 24-7 for months, you know? Exactly. And and as much as Lyra is a, the protagonist of the show, I think Mrs. Coulter is just the most interesting Fascinating. Fascinating character. So interesting. Okay, so Land of the Dead. So the Land of the Dead, yeah. There was a lot going on this week. Like It felt like, okay, last week we knew what they were going to try and do. They were going to try and climb up, find a place where the knife would cut a hole and release everybody. And and I think it's it's a slow a little bit of a slow build to to get to that point this episode because you you literally wake up in the immediate aftermath of that divine explosion. We wake up with Roger as our focus. He can he's kind of searching around for Lyra, gets her on her feet, gets everybody back on their feet and they start mar- marching upwards. And it's that same void that exists in Azrael's world that exists in every world. So so that was kind of nice. There's there's a little bit of kind of uh, squaring off, I suppose, between Roger and Will, but it felt felt weirdly friendly. It also didn't really amount to anything. I, I actually not sure what what the the reason to include that was because I feel like if you're if you're going to in, introduce a conflict, then it needs some form of a resolution. But I guess it's just a sort of an incidental sort of. I mean, it felt real. I think that's how those two characters probably would react to that situation. A little bit unsure of this new person who is uh, has a pre-existing relationship with this person who you are forming a relationship with i think it's all all all, all did feel very honest but um but yeah i mean it's just like it didn't really amount to much but i think the more important conversations in the land of the dead you know take place with other people so there's a bit more business with a harpy but i think that harpy that we saw last episode who was kind of, you know, we don't have names, we don't do names, you know, and sort of flying away in a huff at the at the idea of being asked almost, kind of comes back, gets a name and gets to hear these stories. And, and it's almost like this is all in the book, but I love this idea of the stories as as an important thing, as, as something that can be used against the harpies and, and used for the harpies as well to kind of soften their hearts and, and bring them some kind of relief from this awful place. Yeah, and and I like how it's again Lyra using uh, words and uh, storytelling as a tool to uh, further her own ends, but also as a currency here. She's using it to exchange power, like it's transactional. Yeah, that's a very good point, and I think I think again it's leaning into her strengths and explaining why she's the hero of this and not Azrael, I suppose, isn't it? And then we also get the big emotional satisfaction of this episode, right? We get. You know, Lee Scoresby said he was running off to get stragglers at the back. You have to suspect that, no, he was actually running off with a slightly more specific target <laughs> yeah, in mind, yeah, yeah. don't you? Because hang tight there. Hang tight there, Will, and I will come back with your dad, because I thought that was just such uh, an important moment and in the whole in the whole show, in the whole story. It's a nice reunion, and it's a very, very relatable feeling, I think, that a lot of, you know, who doesn't have that? loved one i think a lot of people would have a loved one who you know you just want it would love to have one more conversation with and i think so they tap into the 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 emotion of that very well and you know will finally gets to hear all the things he wanted to hear because their last conversation was was a very fleeting but b very very much about prophecies and things and you gotta go whereas you know this i think andrew scott uh, or john parry tells him that he and he's a he's proud of him but the, and and also like I like this acknowledgement of the failure that Will is feeling or the regret for not having achieved this mission. You know, he's finally has his his father's sort of blessing that he is he, he's he's more than he expected, right? Or he says you're you're so much more than that. Yeah, I think that was really important because that's been his big 
kind of the, the, the thing that's been kind of tearing him in two is on one hand, yes, I'm definitely going to find Lyra. That's my priority. I have to go and find Lyra. And then, okay, she wants to go to the land of the dead. So we're going to the land of the dead. But but hanging over him all that time has been, yes, but my dad told me I needed to get this to Azrael. And I really also want to do what my long lost dad told me right before he died in my arms. You know, so <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, it's a lot to deal with. And it's, and it's something that I think would eventually have kind of torn him apart a little bit. So to have that sort of, well, okay, yes, I said that, but I didn't have all this information at that point. Yeah, kind exactly. of moment was was actually really, really important for them. He's like, sorry, I got distracted by the side quests, dad. And I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't done the main mission yet. And then, yeah, then it all ends with uh, Will finally, now that I think his mind is focused and he's had his, you know, he's got his dad's approval, which is all any of us want. <laughs> yes, exactly. He finally opens the the gate, you know, the knife is working again. Uh, he's into, I think this is the Malefa's world, right? I think there's a uh, an implication. Oh, maybe so. It, it just looks, it just looked to me very sunny and pleasant and pastoral. I didn't see the tree, the giant trees. That doesn't mean I, they weren't there because I've only seen, seen this episode once. But yeah, I think the main idea is it is, it is freedom. It is light. It is potential for the future and and it made perfect sense to me that that Roger would be the first out that he would be you know that he would he would escape that Lyra would complete her mission before she does anything else and there's obviously a sadness to it that that sort of the dissolve of the person Roger was but also it's such a beautiful effect and such a beautiful moment that it kind of does feel like a return to the universe a return to having potential and it was like the thanos snap but reversed it was yeah it kind right. of was like it's it a was good thing like not a, a bad it's thing it's a good thing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, if dust makes up the consciousness of everything you know it's, it's kind of getting into slightly airy fairy hippie ideas of oh we're all stardust you know you know which we are but at the same time like it's a it's not terribly helpful as a concept most of the time but like it it kind of plays into that idea of yeah you return to the universe you remain part of everything and i thought that was a really nice way of way of playing it i like that i i yeah it is a very common spiritual idea but it's one that is a lot more appealing than never ending purgatory in the in what in land of the dead so it's, yeah. I, I can i could see it as yeah, a, ma- a massive relief absolutely and and seeing seeing all those characters who we have been basically chasing for the last two and a half books go through and be released and and find some kind of peace you know seeing lee name check his demon before he went i thought was was lovely yeah so we've we, we've we've closed off uh, the land of the dead or opened up the land of the dead. Oh, yeah. Open. Oh, very, very good. Um, and we are now in the last two episodes. The big confrontation feels like we are, we're getting there. Things are coming to a head. Chasms are opening. We're in the end game now. I, I yeah, think, yeah. That's just it. A, to quote another series, but um, <laughs> but I think yeah, very much things are moving back together, moving into place. You know, characters who've been separated for half a season or more are kind of beginning to come together and find one another. Once again, it really feels like everything is building towards something pretty epic as a conclusion. Yeah, right. Well, see you for episode seven. See you then. Can't wait.
is Darker Materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a stripped media production. 